Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Ryan Finch with Remax in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Last year, he closed 552 transactions with a total sales volume of $76 million. His average sales price was $138,000, of which 10% were buyers and 90% were sellers. He operates a team with 21 members seven REO agents, seven retail agents, one chief operating officer, one closing coordinator, one bookkeeper, one front desk, one virtual assistant, one courier, and one team leader. Ryan Finch is the team leader of the Ryan Finch Real Estate Team. He has been an agent for seven years. He works the Hamden Roads Market. In this call, Ryan talks about working as a plumber's apprentice before his real estate career. His fast start selling four homes in his first month and 30 homes in his first year. His early work in property management, buyer sales, and traditional listings. Early frustration taking 100 short sale listings but only able to close 1 in 10. His big break listing 22 REO homes on the same day and quickly building up to 150 listings in six months. The financial stress of feeding a cash-hungry business and how he solved it. Transitioning from field work to managing the team. REO software that reduces the time and staff needs. Doubling his business every year, he sold 735 homes year-to-date. Expanding into building homes, flipping homes, and developing his portfolio. Ambition to buy and flip 100 homes in the next 12 months. Focusing on savings and reinvesting in profit-generating enterprises. Saving 50% of every commission check. Being married to a super successful wife. The mental side of the business with a long discussion about self-image. His team structure including the lead agent role. What drives a person to be successful and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. Ryan, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Sure. What I was doing before this was I was actually a plumber in the union. I, I did five years of an apprenticeship, and uh, I started that when I was 18 years old, and uh, that's, where, that's where I started. What made you decide to get into real estate? 
I, uh, I ended up going through a divorce, and uh, I had my daughter, and I was waking up in the morning, taking her to daycare, and then coming home exhausted and going, you know what, I just can't live this life forever. Um, the team member that I ended up joining with, which is now my broker, um, he he was on my church softball team, so so basically I saw you know him drive around a Cadillac Escalade and you know just seemed to be living the dream. So I was like, hey man, I'm I'm interested in doing that. You know, I'm 25 years old and said, hey, how do I how do I do that? And uh, you know that's what started the conversation. When you got in to real estate, did you have a fast start or a slow start? When I came in, it was in 2006, and you know I, I guess obviously it's. It's relative. Um, you know, I come in, I'm, I'm a team agent on this guy's team who's, you know, doing 20 or 30 deals a month. And, you know, for me, I thought it was fast. For me, it was definitely a, a huge jump from, you know, making a, a salaried wage to I, I closed about four deals my first month and about 30 for the first year. So uh, so I felt like it was pretty fast. Um, but I guess, like I said, it's relative because I know that there was tons of people doing a lot more. Yeah, that's a great start. So you came in on a team as a team member, so you were able to see the team concept right off the bat. Yes. When when I came in, I told the broker, I said, you know, I, I mean, I was just, I was so rough on, around the edges, you know, coming from a construction background, you know, no business sense, and the way I was raised was not in a business environment. So, you know, I came in, I kind of was just pretty blunt with them. I said, hey, I'm coming in. I'm not really coming in just to learn real estate. I'm coming in to learn how this business works. And so I said, you know, I'm going to come on the team, and that's my goal is to learn this, and I'm going to go bust my butt and save up my money so I can uh, so I can learn this business. And and he and he was willing to teach me. You know, I mean, as long as I was doing well, you know, he put up with all my um, idiocies because I was a producer. You know, I guess one of the producers for his team. So. You know, essentially, you can get away with a little bit more, but at the same time, it made for conversation. You know, we had plenty of time to talk, and uh, and I could learn how he was running his business. And that's the good and the bad. You know, when you're when you're trying to figure out how you want to run your business, you you want to emulate somebody, but then at the same time, you want to go, hey, I don't want to do the same thing because you know all of us are are different. How long did you operate on that team before you branched out on your own? It was uh it was about a year, uh just just over a year. So we did we did really well as a team and uh what he did is he ended up leaving and starting his own brokerage. When we left, you know, I, I said, All right, I'm gonna go over, I'll stay on your team as so essentially we're a brokerage but we're a team and uh when we did that I stayed for a little bit and then I said, Okay, you know, now's the time I I'm gonna kinda have to move on and, and move on in my business. And I think really what even started that conversation, which is which is funny, and it's also something that produces the way I, I think in my business now, but he didn't want me to do property management, which made a lot of sense um, because he needed me out there doing sales and, and calling the buyer leads, not building a, a pipeline of rentals. And so while we're talking about $100 you know, a month in a rental, it was actually the, the deal breaker for me that I said, you know what, hey, I'm going to go ahead and, and move on out and, and do that, And which I was still under him. It was still his brokerage. I, I rented an office space, and... And it still was was good for him. Uh, it just was the the beginning for me, and boy, was it a learning curve. How long have you been in the business now? October was seven years. So I, I started. I quit that that job with the plumbing. I basically, and this is really funny. All right, I 
I was going through a divorce. I had my daughter. I was doing the real estate school. I was working during the day. I went ahead and uh, had to move. Basically, I, I had to move out of the house because, you know, I'm married and, you know, all of us, we know the real estate rules is basically is community property. So I couldn't say that. She couldn't say that. That's just what we agreed on. Rented that property out and then I, so I bought a house. So I was in the middle of moving, changing company. I jumped cold turkey as soon as I got my license. I bought a house uh, and I used the broker because I didn't have a license yet. Uh, bought a house, moved, and did all of that all at once. And how many homes did you sell last year? Last year was 552 sides. It's fantastic. And how many homes have you sold year to date? Uh, the last time I checked, it was around 735. And basically, we've just kind of doubled our, our numbers, so we're we're looking to hopefully hit about a thousand, you know, to double last year. And the first year, you know, I, I told you I did thirty, and then the second year I did sixty. The third year I did one hundred and twenty. The next year I did two fifty, and then the next year was five fifty, and then this year will be a thousand. And I don't see me doubling again next year. It seems to me that. From what I understand, the majority of your production has been coming from REO. Is that correct? It is. Uh, we started out, you know, doing the buyer side. Then I moved to doing the listings. Then I moved to doing short sales. I mean, there was one point I had a hundred short sales on my own, and essentially I was getting paid one one out of ten, you know, because they weren't closing. This was back when, before they fixed all the rules and everything that was going on. There was no incentive for a seller to even move forward. So you get all the way through with everything else and. They wouldn't move forward. I, um, I, you know, I saw a lot of people in the industry that were doing really well, and they were doing it in the REOs. And I said, "Man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try that." And so I did everything I could. I started putting resumes everywhere. How did you open up that REO side? Basically, I put in applications all over the place, and I, I got a call back. One of the one of the banks called to interview me, and they were a big account, and you know, I didn't have any REOs, so they called me and they asked me their interview questions. You know, they said. It was six months after I put the application in, but so they call me back and they say, "Hey, we're looking to bring somebody on in your area. Um, what's, you know, how, how many houses, you know, do you sell? How, what's your operation look like? Uh, how many BPOs have you done?" Now I had never done a BPO, so my answer was none. They said, "How many uh, active REOs do you have?" And I said, um, "Well, none." And they said, "Well, and you know, so obviously you haven't sold any REOs." I said, "No, I haven't sold any." So it was like, no, no, no. I mean, they were like, thanks, have a nice day, you know. And so I, you know, hung up the phone and that was it. And I, you know, I was like, oh, man. Fortunately for me, I kept her phone number. So I said, you know what, I'm going to try this again. So a couple months later, I called her back and I said, hey, you know, I really am interested in doing this. I'm pushing really hard. I said, look, I've, you know, I've got 100 properties of my own. I said, I don't have any banks. If I just had somebody that would just sell the properties, I know I'd do a good job. She goes, well, that that's great and all, but we ended up finding somebody and we hired them. Uh, also, I'm not in your territory anymore, so you'll need to talk to, you know, you know you'll have to call so and so. And she gave me the person's name and an email address, and so or and, and his phone number. And so I called, and they were, you know, really nice about it. Um, and so anyway, I call this guy up and I bug him for another six months. So you know, we're I'm a year into the process. I'm calling this guy. He's like, look, I'm going to be straight with you. There's somebody that's a better candidate. You don't have any experience. Because he asked me all the same questions. He gave me he gave me the time of day. He asked me the questions. It was all the same answers because I still was, 
I think I had one property then from one, you know, off the cuff uh asset management company and and so anyway they uh he asked me all those questions, he's like, I'm gonna be straight with you. I, you know, I've already got somebody else and I'm gonna try and bring them on. Um he says, But uh, you know, go ahead and, and work on your business and build it up and give us a call back, you know, no big deal. You know, just really professional. Anyway, about three or four more months goes by, and I call him back, and I said, I just can't do it. I'm emailing. I'm following up, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's not getting me anywhere, really. I remember, it's so it's so funny. On, it was a Friday. It was like 6 o'clock, and I send over this begging email, you know, please just give me a shot. I'll do it, blah, blah, blah. He says, all right, man, I'm going to give you a shot. And he says, I'm going to put you through. The other one didn't work out like I hoped, and he, uh, and he puts me through. And so anyway, that was June of, I think 2010, so uh, that I that I really started in getting REOs or at least getting on board. That was uh, that was my breaking into the uh, to the system, and basically I ended up getting, you know, properties here and there, um, not a whole lot off the off the bat. Then they they let a, a broker in my area go, and they transferred 22 properties to me in one day. So. That was really the start of of my career when I had to go. Oh my gosh, I got to figure out how to do this business. And I got to do it better because I didn't realize there was that much business out there. So that's where that's where I ended up actually building up a, a pipeline of properties, and that's where we got started. Once you broke in, and this asset manager finally started to give you a property or two, it sounds like it was just one or two at a time, and then somebody left and you got this big break with 22. How long between the time they started to give you one or two did you have this opportunity to get the 22? I'd say it was probably about a month and a half to two. From the first property to the time I got those 22, it was about it was about a month and a half to two months. And what's, what's really bad is I was out of town. I was in California at the time. And so my whole company's panicking. And, you know, I called the, the agent up who's in my opinion, a really good agent, you know, I don't know what transpired or what happened with that account, but, um, you know, so basically I called her up and I said, hey, it looks like all these came, you know, I'm so sorry, I, you know, I don't know what else to do, I'm not in town, uh, I don't even know that I could go over and put a key in a lockbox to all these things, uh, can, I, can I just buy your lockboxes from you and let's just move them in the MLS with paperwork and, uh, you know, and then we'll do everything we have to do as they're on the market. So I had to, you know, do it that way. And so, you know, that's what we ended up doing. And, um, and you know, and it was an eye-opener to me that I had to fix my system because I didn't have enough people. That's what I, I realized quickly. And so you had to immediately ramp up? I did. I did. I, with staffing and agents, I, I needed people to be able to do REOs, and I needed people to be able to do the resale. I needed people to do the short sale. I knew I needed more people. Somebody told me a couple years back, it's a recruiting solves all your problems. And, you know, I was new to the game. I really didn't know all the things that I didn't know. You know, I was, I, I don't even know how to explain I just, I had no idea. I mean, anything about any of this business. So I had a huge learning curve. Basically, the way it works is I had to do the work during the day, utilize the people that I had, and then I had to learn at night. So, you know, spending the time reading the rules and the guidelines and the things that they wanted me to do so that I wasn't messing up because I went, obviously, they're serious about this business uh, if they're willing to, you know, move a property like that because essentially that that could also be me. You could end up losing them just as fast. That's right. That's right. 
you had to have a lot of, of faith that it was going to work out since you went in and started investing in staff and, and systems to make this happen. Well, you know, I, I knew if I didn't do something, I was going to flounder and lose it. So I had to figure something out quick. What, what was another part that I had to learn really quick was that I needed money, that REOs take a lot of money. There were cash for keys. There was utilities. Everything in the rules that I was reading at night was like, hey, you got to do this and pay for that and handle this. And I was like, so not only do I have to have the people to handle this, I have to have the money to be able to back it. I had a property management. Remember I, I said I, I moved out just basically so I could build the property management business. Isn't that funny? I had to sell the property management business just so I, one, had the staffing and the time, and two, because I needed the funds so that I could cover the um, – the cost of all the upfront costs. Then I had to borrow some money from two other people. I mean, it was before I knew it, I was sixty grand into this thing, and and that was of other people's money, not even including whatever I had initially that I had to put into all this stuff. So it it went up quick. So I had to have a lot of money, and I didn't have it. And basically, I knew that you know, basically all these people in real estate make all this money and they spend it all. And I was the same way. I was no different than anybody else. So when it came time for this opportunity, I wasn't ready. So now I had to scrounge and scramble and beg and plead for everybody to help me. So you know, I was just really blessed and fortunate that things worked out the way they did. But I, I can see now that I should have been preparing the whole time. As you were moving forward, you got these 22 REO listings. You're, you're moving forward, trying to, to provide service on them and get them sold, get them closed. Are you receiving additional assignments at the same time? Yes, yes. We, I think before we, were, um, before we were six months in, we had 150 assets in our, in our portfolio. So it, it, was, it was that quick that it all ratcheted up. So that's, that's the kind of pressure that I was under. It was also your motivator. It was your the reason that you needed to go out and borrow those funds and sell the property management company and put this whole team together is because you could see the flow of business coming in rapidly. Absolutely. And you know, and figuring out the fee structures for my agents and then pay structures for my staff and then who was going to be responsible for what. Um, and you know, essentially we, we built that and feel like we've mastered that and that's what's allowed us to keep doing more. Um, Part of that issue that I said not having enough people was now I keep it where I make sure I have enough agents, I make sure I have enough staff. I, I would rather have more people than I need than to lose business or not be able to perform because I don't have enough people. Who is the first person you brought in? Um, Amy and Cesar were my two buyer's agents. Um, so basically before I had this REO, I went out and got all these listings and then I handled listings and they handled the buyers and they were with me for about a year before this happened. And basically I dumped it onto them. I mean, I quickly went to, okay, I can't do 22 BPOs in one night. Here you go. Here's 11 for you. Here's 11 for you. Have at it. And they took over those and I had to step out of, of everything that I was doing and go to a management position to be able to run the books and the QuickBooks and sign the checks and make sure things were closing, answer to the sales reps and, you know, things like that. So you used your existing staff immediately and then you started adding. Absolutely. Yeah. So another part of what I was doing was hiring. So, you know, you can't go out and do a BPO and then work on hiring somebody at the same time. So I hear it all the time, and I, I think people say it, but I don't know that people really follow it, that you need to be working on your business instead of in your business. And and 
obviously I'm in my business. I review every single BPO. Nothing goes to a client without my review. I, I've since changed it to there's a couple things that through a software system that I utilize can be reviewed by somebody that's trained so that I don't have to look at everything so I can keep working on it. Because even the management part of it can be working in your business once you get to a certain level. What software are you using to, to manage this operation? We do use a lot of Google Docs. We found that that is a, a good thing. Uh, some people use servers and you know J drives and things like that. But when the power's down or the cable's off or you know anything like that, they basically have no access to their phones or anything. So we opted to go with uh, Google Docs as well. We use a software called REO Watch. It it basically is able to feed to the different um, sources, uh, and it's costly. But the way I looked at it was it was able to help me manage my business so that I could so I could be working on other things such as hiring and stuff like that, even though people will normally say, hey, I'm only going to buy a software if it can replace um, personnel. Well, most of the time they have a software like Tazo or something, and they've still got to pay the person to do data input. This one pulls and feeds and pushes and allows for reviews of everything that goes through. So I can have one person basically running, you know, 300 properties with one person using the software, and then I can go in and have a bird's eye view of what's closing, what tasks are not complete, what tasks and where it is in the process. If we're doing an OSR or a CFK or a, a BPO is due or if we need to check for a clean-out or any of that stuff, and all of that stuff is date-stamped and tasked in each of the properties. So, you know, it kind of has a running order. I can tell if the BPO has been done and it's not listed or bids, you know, because a lot of these properties were repaired. I had to put together contractors. I had to cover the cost. We were putting 20 to 30 grand into these properties to put granite, stainless steel in some of them, you know, if they were in nice areas. And and so, you know, that was another part of the, the business that I had to figure out quickly and come up with the money for that. I mean, 20 grand on our property and we had 150 properties. So there was definitely uh, some struggle there and figuring out how to get that money and how to handle that as well. How did you get those funds together? Was it all from organic growth after you got started, or did you have to go out and get a line of credit or other investors? How did you pull those funds together? Everything you just said. I, I did everything that that you just said. I mean, really, I, I did. I mean, I had to get a line of credit. I had to uh, use the funds. So if money came in, essentially, I was I was living below my means so that I could turn around and pour the money back in. So for the first six months to almost a year, I wasn't making any money. Everything was going back in. I was paying the agents. I had to restructure some of their commission slits. I had to structure some of the people's salaries so that they weren't being paid, you know, because the person getting a salary and the agent getting their percentage of the commission and my money was just going toward expenses. And if it didn't, I was essentially going to pay interest on money that I had to borrow. So, you know, I had to do different things like that. I tied it. I had a property. I tied some funds to that. I used the equity line that I had on the property. Um, there was all different avenues I had to, to utilize, in which I know everybody doesn't probably have all of those things, but I was scrounging and just racking my brain trying to figure out what to do uh, to come up with the money. A minute back, you, you mentioned a couple of acronyms. I'd like to go through them just for clarification. You mentioned BPO, that's a broker price opinion, but you also mentioned OSR and a CFK. What are those? CFK would be a cash for keys. So essentially, if somebody's living in a property, we're going to give them 
funds, well, the seller would offer them funds to move out so that they can avoid a lengthy uh, and costly eviction process. Um, an OSR would be an occupancy status report. So anytime we get a property, the initial thing that we would do is check on the status of it. Is somebody living there? The first thing we would do is check to see if utilities are on. If power's off, we can normally assume that nobody's living there, but they still could have property in there, so we have to, you know, do a, a property check and the report back. I have a big picture question for you. We've been talking about the past moving forward. In your current market right now, are you still seeing a lot of REO assignments coming to you and REO sales? That's um that's a great question. And you know, a lot of the things that are coming out, I get things like Inman News and things like that um, to keep me up to date. You know, being educated on our market and the market as a whole across the country is important because we have to keep that pulse. And sometimes by the time you get the news, it's too late. Um, and they talk about that in the stock market. You know, they, they say, you know, buy on the rumor and sell on the news. Um, and that's kind of the way that it works here. Um, I, saw, I saw this market that we're in right now a couple months ago, so what I started doing was buying properties. I actually took the money that I was making now and started buying the properties to stay ahead of it. Anyway, between the election, um, the move towards short sales, that a lot of the banks are moving towards short sales. I've seen it um, from Chase and Bank of America, uh, a big push from those guys, as well as many others that are preferring to do short sales than the other. Um, the inventory has slowed. so. I can tell, I, I tracked every property that I got in each city, um, so that way I could tell, one, I was doing you know, my projections for how much income was going to be coming in, so I knew how much to market and how much to spend and you know, how to use those things. As well, I was able to tell what the market was looking like because I had a pulse. Since I was able to see what bank-owned properties were coming into my market, knowing that I was only a fraction of it, I could tell what was not, gonna, what was not going to be there into three months from then and, and so on. So since I saw that trend, basically you can read any news now. They'll tell you that we have not had in the past, I think it was 50 years, we have not had this shortage of new construction that we have right now. So new construction is a big thing. However, if they flood the market in January and you're building and putting, you know, digging your shovel in today, you're going to be in trouble because they're going to flood the market and you're going to be you know, sitting there with brand new construction competing with a bank-owned property. If not, then you're sitting pretty. I don't think that the builder confidence is there that they're going to be able to dig, dig in deep and put that money in, which means now the bulk of our market right now is repaired properties. We have a bunch of short sales out there. The REOs are coming on less frequently, so which means the, the flippers that can buy properties however they can buy them and put them on are selling with multiple offers. And that's the leading person in our market right now. Brian, I'm still trying to get a picture of what are you doing right now in your business plans? Are you currently expanding with REO? You know, you've closed, I think you said, 735 homes this year. Uh, are the majority of those REO or have you already started to diversify into other things? There's a couple of different things I've done. One is I expanded my REO accounts, meaning... Um, VRM was a, is a huge account right now because, again, listening to the news, they took over the VA account. So I quickly went in and got um, put in my application there, and they accepted. Um, and I think they pretty much accepted anybody that put them in. They may still be doing it now, so if that's any help to anybody, 
um, they may want to go do that. But so they did that. Basically, that gives me another avenue. Um, so if I get slow with one account or another, obviously I have those accounts, and I know those properties are going to move because there are less, less of those on the market. So that's one avenue. Uh, another avenue that I've taken is partnering with a builder because the builders leverage themselves out so badly that once it took a downturn, they basically can't get credit or money to build, but yet they have the staffing and the people to do it. So I'm using my funds to build property. So essentially I'm the, I'm the owner, but they're the builders. So we can uh, put up a couple properties if we can build them, if you can find the dirt. And I don't mean development. Developments, they take two years. You're, you're not going to get anything up that way. And, uh, and the other is buying property. So utilizing my same office, um, I know that I will always be dependent on REO until I can run my own business. Meaning if a property doesn't come in, then I don't have a property to sell. If a client doesn't call me and say, I need you to sell my property or I'd like to buy a property, then I'm dependent. If I can save my money and I can utilize it to, gen to generate my own business, meaning buy my own properties, I get a commission. When I sell them, I can utilize my agents to sell them as well. My sign will be in the yard and it generates buyers so I can make my own market and generate my own business. Does that mean that you've become a flipper? Are you buying for your own portfolio and then flipping them? Yes. Essentially, I, I've set up with the agents. Um, I've set up with a, a couple partners in a couple different avenues to have different people doing the rehabs. And we're essentially, yes, we're going around buying properties and we're, we're flipping them. So that's, that's part of what we're doing. Some will buy and hold, some are buy and flip. What percentage of your current business is the flip model? You know, it it's been something that we've just kind of gotten off the ground, so we haven't we haven't moved a whole lot of those properties. We're basically in the buying stage right now. Uh, a lot of investors slow down during this time period, and this is in in the time in which we're deciding that we're going to ramp up. So we're, you know, we're going to try and take this to about a hundred purchases, and then obviously we'll do a hundred sales if we if we sell all of them, um, you know, in the next twelve months. If I understand correctly. You're looking at diversification and doing some other uh, projects like the flipping model on your own portfolio and, and working with builders, but it also sounds like you're currently still getting a lot of volume from the REO side. Is that correct? We have picked up a, a good amount of volume um, based on performance. We were allowed to get a, a certain amount of properties, also picking up the other accounts, as I had, I had mentioned. You know, part of my job was you know not only managing what was going on, but working, you know, to get other accounts and to recruit the agents that could work on the accounts that I brought them in. So, you know, bring in the business and then bring in the people to, to get the business. And that has, that has maintained. I can't say it's increased. I've definitely seen um, a slowdown in the numbers. But during the boom of when we were getting properties, we, we have a, a good pipeline of properties now that could take us a couple months to get rid of. I guess in my mind, I'm trying to answer the question. I've heard it thrown out there over the last six months or so that REO is dead. And it sounds like it's not dead. You're still doing a lot of REO business, correct? Absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I, I think that anybody that gets into REO needs to have a, a game plan and or an exit strategy, meaning 
that a certain amount of that money needs to go to the side to be building your own business. And that can be, you know, the same with retail. If you're selling REOs or short sales or, you know, buyers or regular listings, you, you still need to be putting money away so that you can buy your way out of the business um, and not count on REOs uh, in the future. Now that brings up a good point. You mentioned just a few years ago, 2010, when you really started to develop this, that the business was throwing off cash, but it was requiring a lot of cash, and you were having to find money to to fuel the system, and you weren't able to take home any money. Uh, it sounds like at some point that transitioned and shifted, and you were able to generate more cash than your company required, and you were able to take those funds, put them on the side. Did you create a, a savings pool of some kind? Absolutely. Um, what I noticed in the industry was that people could do double the business but not necessarily make more money. So you'll see people that are industry leaders, you know, the top of the Remax or the top of whatever, and they essentially are doing the volume, but they're giving it away back to the agents, they're giving it away back to the staff, they're giving it away, they're, or they're spending it frivolously. So, um, or they get hammered for a huge tax bill. I saw, I see that the more money you make, the more you get taxed. So, you know, if you if you made a hundred thousand dollars, and you had I don't know, I'll just throw out numbers here. You had fifty thousand in expenses. You kept fifty thousand dollars. The problem is now you're going to pay taxes on fifty thousand dollars. Now, the more money you make, the more higher percentage you pay in taxes. So, if you got to the you know take that to a bigger number, you're going to pay. You can pay upwards of forty two percent in taxes. So, if you paid forty two percent of the fifty that you kept you really only made $25,000. And so what they want you to do is take that money and spend it back in the company. That's what they want you to do. On top of that, people are digging into debt. They're going, I'm making $100,000 or whatever number they're making. So they're digging debt based on that 100000 not realizing that they have the business expenses, they have the taxes to pay, and that really now they're going to pay, they're going to have their $30,000 for, you know, just for the sake of, what we're using as an example, and now they've got to pay their other bills and they're paying interest and they're only making their monthly payment. So they're paying interest on the money in which they're keeping. So there's a no way out. You're never going to get out that way. It's so hard to be able to stack money. So what you have to do is live so below your means that you can put away a percentage that seems astronomical. My number has been 50%. So 50% of every check that comes in goes to savings. And the reason that is is so that I can cover the taxes, which after you do the actual realized income, it's not 50% of your of your total money kept. So anyway, I'm sure you guys already understand that. But the, the way it works is you don't want to go spend. You don't want to go, hey, you know what, I'm going to pay 40% in taxes, so I might as well pay somebody $50,000 a year so I can keep them. You still want to try and keep that money and pay off debt. And so that way you get ahead. Now you have the snowball working for you. So now every dollar you're keeping and you can reinvest into other things, other companies and things like that. And then, so the running joke around here is that we say we need to take the money and put it into something else that makes more money so we can pay taxes. The reason that's a joke is because the more money you make, the more you're going to pay in taxes. So to go make money to pay your taxes means you have to pay the taxes on that money, So, which is obvious. Um, but it, it's a it's a no win it's a no win situation. So 
basically you're out there running around like a hamster, you know, on a wheel, unless you can get that number to the side. Now, you ask, you know, hey, how do I get that money to the side? The way I work it is if I put 50% to the side, I can spend the other 50 any way I want, meaning if I need to make a trip for a business thing, if I need to spend it on more marketing, I can spend it however I want because I'm putting away the other money. Now, if I can spend $50,000 a month and it can generate me more income, then I can, then that's, that business model works because I'm still going to put away 50%. So I can spend more every month because that means I've saved more because as my 100% increases, so does my 50%. So when I'm, if I was at a hundred grand a month, I'm saving fifty thousand. If I'm at a hundred and fifty thousand a month, now I can spend seventy-five, and still I'm keeping seventy-five. When you say fifty percent, do you mean fifty percent of the gross revenue coming in the top, or do you mean fifty percent of the profits out the bottom? No, gross. Every check that comes in, fifty percent has to go to the side. Wow. And, and it's hard, and everybody's going to say, oh, well, you know what, if I was making X amount of money, I would do that. And I go, no, if you're not doing that, I don't care if you're making $5 a month. If you're not doing it, you're, you're, you're in a tailspin. You're just one month away from going down the tubes. And people are going to go, oh, I say to, I know how we trick ourselves. Do, you know, And that's what was the big realization that I had to do, figure out how am I tricking myself, how am I buying into this thing that everybody else is doing, and how can I do it differently? And I had mentors, people in my life to go, hey, you need to be putting that money aside. I had a friend of mine that was probably making half, maybe maybe a quarter of my income, and they were saving almost three times as much money as I was. But yet I still had to pay taxes on four times the amount of money. So I was never getting ahead, and they were flying past me. And you know, a friend of mine, when he said that to me, I went, "Oh my gosh, I, you're right. I, I'm wasting all this, all this money and this time." So even though I thought I was doing good, I wasn't. And and that's really that's something that I try and impress upon everybody that I work with because I say, if you don't put the money aside, you're going to be doing this forever. And great, you're on top when REO's on top. You're on top when new construction's on top. You're Oh, excuse me, you're on top when short sales are on top. But what are you going to do when it shifts if you don't have the capital to reinvent? Do you run your business as a, a corporation or an LLC? I run my real estate company as a as a S corporation. An S corp? Yes. The reason I asked that was the savings question. Are you saving your money inside the corporation or outside of it? As an S-Corp, it, it wouldn't matter because all the money flows to you personally. That's right. That's right. And then it comes through as a K-1, and then it, you know, you've got to do it as income on your personal stuff. When did you wake up to the realization that you needed to put 50% aside? I don't, it may have only been about a year ago. I thought I was doing something good by putting 20% aside. What I realized is the game of putting more away made me hungry to make more and gave me more capital, made me realize that the other 50%, I could do whatever I want. You know, like some people work on a budget, and I do run basically on a budget because we spend the same amount of money, but I could, I realized that if I made more, then I could take that money and reinvest it in it, and it made more for my 50%, and that was, that was the real light bulb. It wasn't even necessarily putting the money aside, but as much as it was that I could keep growing my business with the 50% that I was allowed to spend. 
so you've been able to pull that off now for about a year. Mm-hmm. How did you go from 20% savings to 50%? Did, did you have to increase your gross? Did you have to reduce your costs? How were you able to accomplish that? Some people will tell you, you know, hey, it's good if you're just enjoying your business and you like what you're doing and, you know, and the business is going to be there. For me, I went in, I had somebody that was already doing all my bookkeeping for all of my finances for, you know, the 571 or, you know, whatever reimbursement money I had to put out. And when they were doing that, I said, hey, I tell you what take the last three months, figure out how much money we were spending. And I, it was pretty much the same thing. We were always spending the same amount of money. So then I said, let me see a P&L from, from those three months as well. And I was bringing in generally the same amount of money. And I said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. I just looked at it and I said, okay, if I brought in X and we made X, roughly we're spending 50% of the money. And, and that was how I, I did it. So I said, all right, from now on, we're going to build this account up to X amount, which means I have one month of, of the reserve. And then I said, all right, and then we're going to build this other account to X number so that we have X number for X number of months of reserve. And I said, so every dollar after that is going to go this way. Every dollar right now will go into this account to make that number. So we essentially set it up that way. So basically I just walked in and said, all right, from now on 50% goes there. If we don't have the money from the 50% on the other side, we can't buy it. So you want a new printer? We're not getting one. You want this, that, and the other? We're not doing it. So we're it. It basically just worked out that we just didn't spend money we didn't have. We acted like we didn't have it. And so if we didn't have it, we had to figure out a way. And really, nothing changed. I mean, it it really didn't change anything. I, that's really my my viewpoint on how it worked out. It I, we didn't change anything. Now a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. When you would receive the income checks, the, the commission checks coming in, would you just take 50% of it right off the top and push it over the savings and then require yourself to run the operation on the remaining 50%? Correct. So you would specifically write a check over on each closing. Is, is that how you got your bookkeeper to do it? It was just transferred. And uh, we had all of the banking in the one account or in one bank. So you just set up a savings account and it would come into to my S-Corp and then Immediately that day, it was moved over to the other. Now, some of that started with that I had some equity lines that were like I had tapped into. I said, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to move that money over and pay off these equity lines um, because I'm paying on that per day. So every day I get a check, money could move over there, and I was saving that percentage of money. So I made, I made money by making this decision and starting this. By reducing your debt. Right. Ryan... Do I understand correctly that, that you are married to Chantel Ray, another real estate agent? Yep, Chantel is my wife. She has been the uh, number one agent for the past three years in our market. Uh, she Even last year, she was the number one agent. So she she was doing REO um, you know, before I was, and even when we got married, you know, we got married, uh, I guess, almost four years now, but we got married four years ago, and she was... 
she was the marketing queen. She knew how to get the properties. She knew how to to sell them. She knew how to be the top of mind, and uh, she was the top of the market. That's kind of my question. I think you're starting to answer it. My my big question in my head was, we've got this married couple who are both real estate agents, who are both producing amazing results in the same market, but they're working for different companies and running different teams. And my question was, why are you running two teams instead of one team? That's a great question. One was, she was already the boss at home. I didn't want her telling me what to do at work. <laughs> uh, no, no, but seriously, we, we, you know, we just decided we were already running separate companies while she was thrashing me in her production compared to mine. It was, it was just the way that our business was set up, and we just we looked at it as I had a job, she had a job, and you know, we just didn't work together. It's no different. If I was a garbage collector and she was a school teacher. That's the way we look at it now. You know, obviously, when we get home, our pillow talk can be about different business things and and whatnot. And what's really what's really interesting for me is that in the beginning, I listened to a lot of what she said. You know, she had so much to say. Well, I still listen to her, but I came from that plumbing background. And in the plumbing background and being young, I was treated really poorly. And I always thought of myself as more than I was, meaning meaning I was just the low man on the totem pole, but I never acted like I was low man on the totem pole. Same thing when it came to, like I said, I was rough when I came into real estate. I I never acted like I was the low man just learning the business. I thought of myself as pretty educated. I owned three houses when I got into real estate. When I got into real estate. So I kind of knew the process and how it worked, um, you know, a little bit. And And so anyway, I always carried myself that way. But so people... When I would say something, though, being the new guy, whether it was plumbing, whether it was brand new in real estate or whatever, they didn't listen to anything I say. So, you know, it's it's really funny to, that I know a lot of the people like Chad and um, Pat and Leo, people that you have interviewed on here. And I go, these were the guys that I looked up to as I was trying to come up in the ranks. And, you know, I would ask the questions they would never ask me a question. There was nothing they were interested in hearing from me. So anyway, the reason I say all that is that I go, it was kind of something in me that I went, you know, it was hard. You know, you're married to a, a woman that's really sharp and smart and uh, successful, and, you know, you're trying to get there. But that was also my motivator going, all right, she can do this. She's doing it. I ended up with a pretty different business model uh, than her, and my goal was, you know, to beat her. And that got that got harder and harder because she just kept going more and more, so it was almost impossible to catch up to her. But you know, eventually we we we're there now. But that's um, that's kind of what the motivator was. It was a healthy competition. We helped each other. We do we do different things. There came a point in time when you know I get I I really got to the point where I think I earned her respect and that in the industry wise, well. You know, obviously, husband and wife is a different role than it is, you know, where you stand in your position at work. Um, but, you know, I would be able to go over and train her agents on different things that we learned because she was she was further along. She was working on the business while I was still working in it, and I was still learning the things. And so I could go over and teach some of her people and different things that we did that made us successful in different areas. And it's really a testament to each of you as individuals that your friendship, your marriage, 
was able to survive that competition without it getting nasty somehow. You were able to create a healthy competition between you, and I assume it drove both of you to, to higher heights. You know, it did, and I, here, here's what happens, though. It doesn't matter where you are. When you're at the top, you almost have nothing else to drive you. So the reason she stayed at the top for the length that she did, besides her intelligence and you know the planning and all of that, was I think part of the fact that she knew I was coming for her, that I was my goal was to beat her. There was nobody else in the market to beat except her. And um, I, you know I used to challenge my broker all the time. You know when I started my own team versus his own team, and he's the broker and he's got his team, and you know I go in and say, hey, you know I'm going to catch up with you one day, and I, you know whatever, and he go, look man, no matter what you're always going to have every deal you do, I'm going to make money off of. So if you do 20 deals and I do 20 deals, I did 40 and you did 20. And that's what the way he would you know, explain things to me, which, which turned things around because then I went back and I set up a flat fee with him before I took off and did all this business. So now he goes, oh, my gosh. You know, it's, it's a whole different thing. And you know, we're buddies and we talk. And, but, again, that's another relationship that changed. You know, my Basically, people's relationship with me has changed that I've been the same person the whole time. But the fact that anybody would want to listen to me now is um, it's humbling uh, and it's, it's a good feeling, like a, a sense of accomplishment to have the respect of the people that you have so much respect for that you know, have done so much in this industry. So uh, you know, it feels good. You know, I talked to Pat just the other day and I, you know, I talked to Leo on a regular basis. You know, those guys that are industry leaders and you know they're they're always got new ideas you know and that's what I think keeps them at the top is that they're always coming up with the new ideas and and uh and they're making a plan and then working their plan so Ryan you've grown you've developed your business and your knowledge base to the point where you're not just listening to others ideas you're now contributing your own and and they're starting to listen is that true that is true they they have started to listen to the things that I say, and in my own view, like I said, I always thought of myself as kind of bigger than I was, and my ideas haven't changed. I haven't changed the way that I think. Well, I've changed as a person, and I've grown, and that was one of my goals as part of doing this business, and I don't feel like I have any resentment toward toward people that didn't listen, and I, I don't have any problem if somebody doesn't listen now because we're all different. We all have different ideas and different plans to how we're going to do things, and it's okay. You know, if, if somebody doesn't listen before, I felt offended. You know, if somebody didn't listen to me because I felt like that was a blow to who I was or what I knew, and, you know, I can imagine there's people out there that have these great ideas and that people don't listen to them, and at the end of the day, it goes, hey, if they don't listen, let's just go run our own plan and we'll go, hey, let's just see where the chips fall at the end. Maybe it's a good idea, maybe it's not. Maybe somebody has done it and it didn't work out and that's what they're trying to tell me uh, and I can learn from those things. Or maybe they are stuck in their own mind of what works. You know, like we all, success can also hinder us, meaning we, we are not open to other ideas. So we're following the same path over and over one of the common questions we always ask in our office is how can we do this better? So, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're the person answering the phone, the brand new agent on the team, or you've been here, you know, five years. It's, we want to know how can we do it better. We want to see somebody else's viewpoint so that we don't have any blind spots. And so your advice to people out there who are, 
either getting their business up and running or been running for a long time is to go with their gut and try experiments and and have faith in themselves even if others don't yet. Absolutely. I mean, they they need to obviously calculate the risk. You don't want anybody putting their family in you know harm's way. But you know, there's some basic principles that can be followed, and then from there, once you follow these things and make a foundation, then you can risk some some decisions. I, I don't suggest you know pulling an equity line out on your house and going out and buying billboards you know everywhere, thinking that's going to be the end all be all to your business. Um, work sweat equity and then building up the cash. Can give you the options, and then you can explore the what you're going to do. But at the same time, using that same model that I said before, save the 50%, and then you can blow the other 50% however you want. But don't go dipping into that savings to try and to try and do some kind of whim that makes you think that you're going to have the uh, you're going to hit a home run. And and you may, but you know I just I don't think that's necessarily the the smartest way to go about business. Slow and steady wins the race. You know, I'm thinking about this concept of, I can't get it out of my mind, this, you and Chantel are this powerhouse couple in in the real estate industry. Your volume production last year, if you combined it together, together you all closed 1,362 homes last year. If you combined operations, you'd be like the number one agent in the nation, or at least in the top three. Do you have any future plans for combining your operations? We don't have any plans to do that right now. And what's funny is, you know, we went over. She's actually started her own brokerage, so she's now the broker owner of her uh, of her office, and she's um, built out an office, which you know we obviously did together. Um, she did the majority of the build out. I just mean that we we worked at it together financially. Um, the the model just works the way that it is. We again, we run different business models. We have different philosophies on how things should run and. I, I think that going together could essentially limit the efforts that we make in two separate arenas. So one McDonald's makes you a million dollars, two McDonald's makes you two million dollars, and what you're you know you're kind of looking at it like you're looking at it as hey you guys could have two million dollars, and I go it's still the same. There's nothing different. If we went together, it wouldn't make anything any different except the sphere of influence that I have on the on the things that I have work for me, and the things that she has work for her. If we came together, I could lose my um, my ability to work in certain arenas. So, um, and 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 decisions that I make and that she makes. So, you know, we've decided to do that. What's funny is, you know, it's always the end of the month. We come home and the end of the month is, oh man, I had a bad month. I only did X amount, you know, and and that's kind of the laughing joke that we that we have. But we're kind of serious. It, it's it's never good enough. It doesn't matter how much you do. You know, we, and, but yet we try and encourage each other. If she was down about, hey, I only did X amount, which is still, in my opinion, probably astronomical, um, she, she would really still feel down like, man, I expected to do more. We, we get hit by a hurricane, and obviously that impacts us both hugely because, um, you know, all these things, the last day of the month, all these lenders wanted things reinspected. So, you know, 20 deals for her and 20 deals for me get moved to the next month. So, you know, and that's why we say, hey, we only did. And we'll talk about transactions and volume and, you know, things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, we get to go home and go, hey, you know, we left work there and we don't have to answer to each other. You know, I just thought of one advantage of your arrangement, and that is that you can each experiment independently and then take 
the winners and share the winning concepts with the other and help push each other forward by taking those winning ideas and incorporating them. That's right. And and we definitely, we do that. We say, hey, this worked, but this didn't work, or hey, I tried this. But I'll tell you, there's another, we're different. Her and I are different in that I go, whatever I do, you can do. She's, She's basically, if you can look at it like this, she was the front runner. She was doing well before I did well. So she helped me in the, in the way that, you know, in all facets, she gave me ideas and told me how these things, because remember when I told you I got into this, I didn't know one thing about it. I, I hit a home run on getting the account, but I didn't know what I was doing. And so she helped me, you know, a good bit. I will say that my people did a lot of learning uh, on their own and, and put in a lot of effort. I don't want to discredit them for that. Um, but so essentially I'm stepping on her toes because she's used to being the top dog. So, But I don't have that that um, mindset. And it's a good thing for her because that's what drives her to be number one. And um, and I just I don't have it. So, so basically a good example is like she has an app out. It's phenomenal. She made an app, and I go, oh, my gosh, I wish I could do that. But we can't share. I, I can't go open up uh, an app that does the same thing that she does. So it's a disadvantage in that way, whereas you could mastermind with somebody in another part of the country and take those ideas, but I can't do that in my own hometown. Do you understand what I mean? It, which Her app is phenomenal. She can go on the radio, blast out the app. I mean, I go over to a buddy's house, and they're telling me, hey, yeah, look at this app I just downloaded. It's a friend of mine. but she's just she's a genius and it's so hard to to hang with her because she's so smart and she's always ahead ahead of the curve i'll tell you ryan that she makes similarly positive empowering statements about you and how you have pushed her forward as well you have a dynamic partnership and marriage going there that's impressive dynamic duo yeah, they they tell us we're the uh, we're the royal couple here because she was number one and I was number two in the area uh, last year, and I think it'll be the inverse this year, but it'll still be the same. Basically, I get to take the king spot for uh, for a year. I, I told her I said just so I don't have to sleep on the couch, I may not even fill out the application. Let's talk about your team. Could you do us a favor? Could you walk through your team and tell us the titles? positions of people you know who's doing what could you go through positions rather than people's names and kind of, so we can get an outline of how your organization is structured so basically it's almost divided in half i have seven agents that work on reo and i have seven agents that do retail we the seven agents on reo you know some the newer agents basically get the cream of the crop, the first things that come through um, in the local market. And then we have things that are like expounding markets that are, you know, a couple miles further away. So we essentially, I bring those agents along. They learn how all of our techniques, and they can fill in a gap should the initial agents get overloaded. So we have those as backup agents. While they still have properties, we never let an agent have more than 30 properties. So that's why we make sure we have enough agents um, to do those. So. Anyway, we have seven agents divided up. They're on the REO side. They're strictly listing REOs. They they may get a buyer lead or somebody calling in. They have to turn that over to the to the retail side. The retail side is broken up. We have three agents that can handle short sales and listings, uh, and then we have four agents that handle buyer calls. 
the listing agents are able to do buyer calls as well, but for the most part, referrals and things that come in as listings and short sales, we handle to the agents that know. We're trying to bring up the other agents to the same level, but at the same time, we never want to risk losing a deal. And as well as the, the customer that an inexperienced agent can cost them uh, you know, significant turmoil, uh, as well as maybe losing their house or something along those lines. So we take, uh, we take that into consideration whenever we're having anybody work on anything. Our team atmosphere and culture here is huge. You know, it, it's always somebody looking out for somebody else. All of our phone calls, if the phone call is missed, it's emailed to everybody. Somebody will cover for them, answer the phone call, handle the problem for them. Uh, it, it's just part of the culture. It's the way that it works around here, and it starts with me at the top, meaning there's nothing that I don't do. If somebody needs me to do something, I, I don't prefer to go out and do an OSR if I don't have to. Uh, if there's somebody else that can, meaning that it would take me away from something else, but at the same time, I, you know, essentially I work for them. I serve them. If they need this taken care of or this done, they email me and ask me to do it, and I, you know, I do it for them. So, and, and that's basically the reason, that, the reason I'm doing it is to build the culture that I expect the same of everybody else in here. You mentioned the agents. Do you also have administrative staff? What I also have is I have um, my sister, who is my seat. So she's in charge of all the operations on both sides. She handles any coordination of anything while I'm out. So she will review offers or reductions or bids or uh, handle problems with, uh, you know, if a client calls in and has an issue with an agent or another side of the agent or has a question about why aren't we getting a response back on an offer or anything like that uh, or a question about a procedure she would handle that um, as well as the management of tasking and organization. Then we have, we have another person that handles all the financing. So each we have all the QuickBooks that are up to date as well as all of my business accounts and anything like that. Any checks that are written, she writes all the checks. I, I would sign them all, but she, she basically keeps track of all the money. Then we have somebody else that is um, basically an admin slash front desk person, they'll answer the phone or um, you know, greet customers as they come in. They keep up with spreadsheets and tasking, things like that. We have a virtual assistant who just works from home, data entry into the MLS, websites, um, postings on Craigslist, uh, different things like that. And then we have a closing coordinator. Closings are you know, our top priority, um, and basically she is following up with all the, the banks, meaning the loans, the appraisal, the termite making sure she has all that formatted for all of the closings, and then sending out the agents, making sure they're taking care of their tasks, as well as reporting to me so that I can give feedback to our sellers if there's any questions on a closing. I think that's everybody. Oh, and then we have a courier. Takes care of getting the signs up, uh, puts the lot box on, takes pictures, um, posts any notices, uh, you know, after the, not the original notices, but posts different things picks up HOA docs, picks up checks, uh, you know, different things like that so I can keep my agents actually working on dollar productive activities. How are you compensating your agents? Basically, I set up a fee structure that for REO agents, they're given 40% for each deal that they do. Uh, they normally do a good volume of business each month and so we keep that number basically the same. So their percentage stays consistent throughout the year. 
then we have the retail agents, and they are all on a sliding scale, meaning every single month the first two deals, they get paid 40%, the second two is 50 and everything after those four deals in a given month is at 60%, and that would be their max that they're paid. Do you prefer the higher experienced or new agents? And that's a great question, and we actually have a mastermind meeting um, in our in our company, our brokerage, and different team leaders and and uh, individual agents get together, and everybody has a different opinion on this. And basically, I go, I don't care what they are. If they're experienced, then that's fine. It and and my my viewpoint is different. And everybody goes, well, it's different, Ryan, in your position because you get these properties from the bank. The rest of us have to go pay for leads so that we can you know generate business for our company and so every lead costs us money and if we give them to an in one viewpoint is if we give them to an experienced agent um then they would be handled better and another may say if we give them to an unexperienced then they're going to lose more my viewpoint is that everybody that comes in is going to do it the way that our system is set up so you know and i have basically a lead agent who would train them and everything is going to be done the same way. So whether whether you've done this business 50 years or whether you're brand new to the industry, you're going to learn my way. And, and, and I don't mean it as it's a my way or the highway, but I need it to be that way so that I can have consistency throughout the organization. The lead agent who's training the, the new agents, does the lead agent get additional compensation for doing that work? He does. We, we agreed on a... Uh, on a a fee, uh, a 5% fee on each deal that the other agents do because he's going to mentor them and bring them through the transaction. How long does that happen? Is it for the first X number of closings or first uh, six months or how long is the 5% in place? As long as the agent's at the company. He also does my does part of my recruiting. To do the amount of business that we do and the things that we do, I I feel like I'm compensated in this industry based on my capacity. You know, everybody does not want to sell a thousand houses this year. They don't want to sell a hundred houses a month. That's a lot of work. It's a lot to keep up with. Um, they go, hey, I could probably make the same amount of money working on my own selling 50 houses. So maybe they do it that way. Anyway, I say that because there's different agents that are on my team. They go, hey, I could go out on my own and do X, Y, and Z or do things this way. And and I say, well, if you have capacity to do more. Let me give you more. I have more work. There's always more things that can be done or added to your plate, and you can be compensated accordingly. And so essentially we make it where they're vested and interested in building the company because everything that they can do is something less that I have to do. I mean, obviously, that, that's, of course, that's the way that it is. But I read in a book, basically they said in every organization, deciding how big you want to be and where you want to go means partially deciding how much money you want to make and or how much percentage of equity you want to give up. So to give up a percentage of equity for somebody else's work effort is based on their results, and that's what we do in real estate when we're giving out our business to other agents that work, as well as the same can work for the recruiting of agents and training of agents. When you mention lead agent, do you have two lead agents, one for the REO, one for the retail, or do you just have one lead agent over all of it? I did have one for each. Um, what I ended up doing was I put somebody, uh, my my sister, the COO, is over top of managing for the REO, so we put together a training system for new REO agents versus having one of my REO agents 
have to stop production to train somebody because that dollar amount wasn't conducive for them or for us due to the volume. Ryan, you mentioned you've got this big organization and all these people running around. Even though we've addressed it a little bit, some people are probably still out there wondering, are you profitable? You know, Rockefeller, when he was asked, you know, does he make, how much money is enough money? Do you know what he said? He said, one more dollar. So, you know, it, as soon as it becomes profitable in your mind, you're complacent. So, you know, am I able to pay the bills and, you know, produce for the, the business for the people? Essentially, when you get in this position, you're more working on not how much money you make, but how much business you can provide for your for your people. So... I'm always looking out uh, for the next thing that I need to make sure that they have work. That all they have to do is work, I'll provide the business and, and the financing for it, um, and not so much looking at the, uh, at the bottom line. I do, I do know that we make a profit. I tend to follow the Apple mindset, and my, this is my own opinion of Apple, is that you know, they have a, a, a lock on the market in the things that they do, and meaning... I don't think there's anybody that has a better phone than the iPhone. It's just my own personal opinion. And as well, my own opinion is I don't think anybody in the country does REO as well as we do. And so obviously that's a matter of opinion, and there may be people that do it better, um, and I just don't know. Um, But with that being said, Apple also has one thing going for them that builds the value of their stock, which is uh, they have money in the bank, and they – surpassed Walmart this past year because of the amount of money in the bank as the top uh, company. So anyway, we follow that same model and that we think that our business is as stable as the amount of funds in the bank. And in order to have that, we must be profitable. So you are profitable. Absolutely. That's the goal. How can we be more profitable? How can we do more business and increase the profits, not do more business and lose profit and or meaning people will go out there and spend money on ridiculous things to generate business um, that is not really conducive to to generating more income for the company like it's a risk and I have found things I, I think I mentioned this earlier we use Google Docs you know other people would pay for a server or then they have to pay tech fees and computer companies and all this other stuff to have all this stuff And they say that's a hard cost that you have to have. They say you have to have DID numbers for each of your phones. And I go, I can do the math. And doing the math, I figure out a way to be cheaper than everybody else because that's profit. Everything, every dollar that I save is me as a business person saying, how can I I be better than the next guy? And so if we can do it at a cheaper rate, then we do. So things like Craigslist, that's an ad posting that you can do. It takes time, but the dollar cost for time to post, if done right, is less than it costs for me to try and generate leads another way. Not leasing cars, not leasing printers, um, you know, just paying for them and not having to pay things out that way. Just trying to figure out different ways to save money all the time. That Not just going with the, all right, look, here's a good example. I pay $3,000 a month for 3,000 square feet of an office space. So that's that's pretty inexpensive for the amount of transactions that I'm doing. I know people that pay uh, fifteen to twenty dollars a square foot. 
but they're not doing the same amount of business. But they think that you have to have granite countertops and a kitchen and a gym and, you know, catering to everybody else and everything that they need. And that cost essentially trickles down. So agents can't make the split that they want because the cost of the overhead is so high. And then one bad performing month means now you're not profitable this month, which ate into next month's profit. Did you say you do or don't own your brokerage? Part of the deal that I negotiated with my broker was for 5% ownership. But so I own ownership in it, but it doesn't pay dividends or do anything for me unless we try to sell the company. Um, so essentially, I'm not an owner is the way I look at it. Ryan, do you have any other side businesses, the affiliate-type businesses that are related to your brokerage business? We have a, a title company. It's a joint venture um, that, you know, essentially we just do title work for different loan officers and uh, and buyers that they choose to use our title company. And then I have the, the flipping company, so that's for for basically buying and selling properties. And then I have properties that I own and manage that run other other LLCs. I basically own each property in an LLC, so it runs as a separate company. A lot of our listeners got into the business because they want to be real estate investors. Would you mind disclosing how many properties you own? Uh, we have, I think, five right now. We I, I just sold I sold off one. Basically, we had a boom in our market, so I got rid of uh, one of those that was costing me money. Uh, then I took the other money to get the other ones paid for. Uh, then I borrowed back against them with equity lines. So essentially, I'm not paying the interest every month on those you know, to be debt-free. Then I have the available cash in the equity line should I find another dealer or property that I want to take down for cash. So you own those five properties free and clear? No, we have mortgages on two of them for a little bit of mortgages. Ryan, why have you been so successful? Man, that feels like a loaded question. I, You know, you asked that question, and I, I've been asked that before, and my mind doesn't think that way. You know, I told you before, I, I think of myself bigger than I am. Uh, you know, obviously my ego, and I think a lot of agents have those. But in the grand scheme of things, I know people that do way bigger business than I do. So I I don't like feel like I've arrived and and sustaining business is really the true measure of success to me. So meaning you can build up and be there. You're like a vapor today and gone tomorrow, you know. And uh, so I, I guess the long and short of it is I I don't necessarily feel like I've made it to be successful yet. I mean, I've I've worked hard. I've set goals um, and, and worked at those things. I definitely feel like God's hand has shown favor in my life. I, I don't deserve this. I'm not smarter than anybody else. I think that if I can do what I've done in this business, that it means it's capable and out there for anybody and everybody. How do you keep control of your time? A lot of delegation. Uh, a big part of it is having people around me that I can count on. You know, I, To do the volume that we do, you'd think that you'd need more personnel, but really what I've found is just people that I can trust and I don't keep people around me that I can't count on. So it doesn't matter whether you're a buyer's agent or an REO agent or staff. If you're a buyer's agent, you're going to answer that phone like you're me. If you're an REO agent, you're going to answer it like you're going to handle that property like it's mine. And if you're staff, you're going to handle any situation like it's me, meaning they are they are me in a representation. And if they are not handling it accurately, 
then the first way I point is at me to say that I haven't uh, given them the direct uh, course of action for how to handle the situation, which we've had to grow, you know, in a lot of things. How many hours do you work in a typical week? I don't know. I I, I keep my phone on me and an iPad, so I kind of will work all over the place. I feel like lately it's gotten a lot more streamlined, and so depending on whether I'm trying to grow or not is the depending factor of whether I'm working more. So if I've got an interview with an agent because I'm trying to recruit agents, then that's going to incur more time. I get about 800 emails a day, which most of the time I'm CC'd on something so I can just breeze through it. Um, I, to answer you, two days a week I try and work out so I don't get in till 10. Um, and then the other three days a week I normally work 8.30 to 5. I just I like to work. Uh, I like what I'm doing. Uh, and then I go home, but I still have my phone and iPad, so sometimes I get yelled at for having my phone at the table. Um, but I, you know, I try not to, and most of the time it doesn't need me. It's just a habit. So essentially I'm working, but I'm not. So I don't know that there's hours now. But I'll tell you, when I was first doing this, I worked till 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, people will always say, oh, man, if I had your business and if I you know, was doing what you're doing, and I go, if you had to do what I did, it, it may change your mind. You know, and, you know, I talked about the financial crunch, the stress. You know, it's hard. We we bought a house and moved. We got married. We had a baby. I've got a two-year-old baby. Uh, you know, I moved offices. I, I've just had so much that was been on me. Um, I don't know that anybody would really want to be interested in, in doing it. And meaning it'd be great if it was going to last forever, but it's not. So, you know, we won't know whether it was really beneficial, you know, until we find out how long it's going to last. Ryan, what drives you? My um my signature line on my uh on my email is I'm changing lives selling houses along the way. What drives me is that I'm trying to set up a platform to be able to reach into other people's lives and change them. Meaning God has come in and changed my life and that I've been so blessed to have the people in my life and I think the main factor in people's lives is the other people in your life. You can have bad people in your life, and you can have good people in your life. You can have people in your life that really want what's best for you and will tell you the things you don't want to hear and or tell you the things you know, that are going to guide you and, um, and push you through when you, don't, when you can't see clearly. Anyway, those people and things are factors. I feel like I can go into people's lives and not have a motive and just tell them honestly and openly what's best for them so essentially that's what drives me is that remember what I said before nobody wanted to listen to me when I was a, you know when I was doing nothing and I didn't have something that they thought I could contribute so basically building a platform and driving to be the best so that I have so when someone would have a reason to want to hear what I have to say Ryan if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business what would you tell them to do first you know, I, I actually, when I sit down with agents um, that come in to interview with me, and I, I normally I talk to them about the different models that are out there. So, you know, when they're, and I say, I don't want you here if this is not the place you want to be. So a brand new agent, I really, I pose the question back on them as what their goal and what they're trying to do. My personal opinion is is based on my own life experience. And, and so meaning I came in and I joined a team, so I do feel that joining a team 
is probably the best answer. If they're looking for this to be their income to provide for their family, meaning there's only one thing worse than working all month and not making any money. Do you know what that is? Working all month and losing money. And, and, you know, everybody that's a real estate agent knows exactly what that's like. You know, you can you go out there, you're on a team, and you sell a house, you work on that house, and you, if, if you work all month and you're on a team and you don't sell a house, you didn't put any money out. If you go out there on your, on your own and you spend money on marketing and you don't sell a house, you lost money. And so, so essentially you can spend money and work and get nothing. On the team model, you can normally work. You're not putting out any money, but you're putting out sweat equity. So worst case, you worked and didn't make any money. So it's a step up. And I think that due to the amount of people that go in and out of this industry, the first thing that they need to do is position themselves to not lose money because you can sustain not making money. You can't sustain losing money in most cases. I mean, obviously, that's general. But so anyway, so if they're looking to, to need to provide for their family, my opinion is they should start with a team. They can always, you know, move out of that later. Um, but to go and lose money off the bat not knowing which way to go, how to generate business, spending money on generating business, and trying to work the business is two different jobs, and they're going to take on those two new roles without knowing anything makes their chances of success limited, in my opinion. Do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing right now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? I think they're as, a, as valuable as the people want to um, apply what they're hearing. Meaning, I think that there's a lot of good agents out there, and the reason that they are, are where they are is because they implemented things they learned along the way. So if somebody's willing to tell you the inside and the details of what they do and how they do it, whether it's the model which you want to follow after or not, to the degree in which you listen to it is going to be the degree to which you have success in most cases. I mean, obviously you can go out and be successful and you not listen to anybody at any time. I just think that that's less likely. So ultimately I do think it's very valuable if somebody's willing to go, you know what, I don't really fully understand this, but I'm going to push forward and I'm going to try and do this. Where do you see the market going in the next few years? I think, I, I feel like we've kind of hit the bottom, at least here in our market. We have a pretty stable market. I, I can't speak for everywhere. Um, but I do see some new construction is going to be coming up and moving over the, you know, the next 12 months. That's what's going to be moving. Uh, the rehab business is going to be moving. And banks are going to start seeing a higher net profit on as-is properties because there's less inventory out there for them to buy that way and or they're going to see that they're going to lose money. The, the investors are driving the market, meaning that they have to make an income based on what they buy. If they can't buy bank-owned properties in which they're doing 12 offers and it's multiple offer and they're paying over asking price, means either one, it was listed too low, or two, there's less inventory out there, so they're willing to pay more because they feel like they can get a better return due to low inventory. All right, with that being said, they're going to go in and put offers in on short sales and that the banks are going to end up taking less on a short sale than they would have to maybe have sold it as a foreclosure. So the market is going to be driven by investors over the next you know, couple of years, in my opinion, because they're going to be putting together the properties that are ready for homeowners to move into. It's, it's, still, it's still an industry and a, a market where people can buy at a low rate, so why not buy if you're going to rent you're going to rent and pay $1,000 a month and throw away twelve grand a year and you make thirty grand a year, 
you know, that doesn't make sense even if you buy a house and it doesn't gain value, you still would be able to write off the percentage of the taxes to give you a lower tax bracket. Essentially, you're, you're gaining ground because over 30 years you, you, you paid something off. Ryan, I've gotten to the end of my questions. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about? I appreciate uh, you taking the time to interview me and ask these questions. I appreciate the efforts that you're going through to help the other agents in this industry as I know that they are all pushing and doing the best that they can. I, I do know that I am in a unique situation. Uh, I, I'm very fortunate. I do feel that people can do whatever their their goals are. They can set goals and they can accomplish them. There's nothing in this industry that they can't do if they really just set their minds to doing it. Uh, I'm open to anybody contacting me uh, if they need anything from me. Uh, you know, obviously I want to help as many people as I can. Uh, as you know, I feel very fortunate for my position. I don't know how long I'll be in the position that I'm in, and I may change venues to owning more properties than selling them. So you know, anything can happen, and I, you know, I think that definitely people putting their heads together, we can do a lot to turn this market around. And I think that it needs to start with us as real estate agents. Well, Ryan, you share great advice. Your internal belief statement, I think of myself as bigger than I am, has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You've grown and developed quickly. You listened and learned from mentors. And now you are teaching and mentoring others. By keeping your mind open to new ideas, you are avoiding the success trap. Your 50% savings plan is a model for all agents to copy. I know you have what it takes to create a sustainable and successful business. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.